we return to our interview with Dr. Geronimus. Is that a fair summary of what you're what you're alluding to? I think it's a fair summary. I would say that you know whether someone occasionally takes cocaine and has a several hour impact may not lead to weathering if if the rest of their life is not stressful um, and if they're not doing this every day. But if right. they're addicted and taking drugs every day and you know, having to remain vigilant to all other kinds of threats or to be endlessly managing in their minds, you know, how am I going to get to work this morning? The bus hasn't shown up. I'm standing in the freezing cold and smelling diesel fuel waiting for it. If I'm late, I might get fired um, or I might have to stay late and then I can't get home in time to get to my second job because we're all paid so little that you can't possibly make ends meet on one job. And then I worry about my kids and then I get no sleep because I do a night shift job. These things are just 24-7. I think that's a good analogy. In the limited time that we have, I wanted to turn back to this article, this urban poor aging faster at cellular level. Because in that article, they're quoting your work, and they are indicating that, that in these studies that went on, the researchers analyzed what they called telomeres, T-E-L-O-M-E-R-E-S, of poor and lower middle class black, white, and Mexican residents of Detroit. And these telomeres are these tiny caps at the end of DNA strands akin to the plastic caps at the end of shoelaces that protects mm-hmm. cells from aging prematurely, but you're actually finding or found that the telomere length, as it shortens, the predictability, it's associated with shorter types of lifespan. Can you just, that's the physiological thing that's going on as a result of these things you're talking about that then translate into maybe shorter life expectancies for this population? Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's one of the physiological things. Telomeres, as you said, are these protective caps on the end of chromosomes, and they shorten. You have, you're sort of born with a certain length telomere, and it protects the, the DNA and, other, and the cell integrity. Um, and as you grow and develop and later as you age, your telomeres shorten as in every cell it undergoes division. And that, that is, in a way related to what aging biologically is. We all will eventually have our telomere shortened to a kind of threshold length where the cells die or at least don't replicate and, and it becomes impossible, you know, for our organs and tissues to repair themselves or to continue to function. And that's, that's sort of senescence and aging, but we, we mostly think that's not happening till the 70s or 80s. But what our research found is that in marginalized and impoverished populations subject to weathering, you can see evidence of that telomere shortening at much earlier ages, certainly, you know, by the 30s and 40s and 50s, and probably even younger than that. And that one of the things that would lead to, there are several things that could lead to telomere shortening faster in some people than others. Part of it in an individual level is just you know, genetic, but on a population level, that's not the main factor, or it isn't really a factor at all. Your cells will divide more and more if they need to repair damaged tissues and organs. And so to the extent that this weathering process we've been talking about leads to the damaging of tissues and organs, 
your cells are going to divide more often and faster, and therefore your telomeres are going to get shortened to a length where they no longer either survive or behave in a good way, um, or a way that promotes your health. So what's nice about the telomeres is that they're literally measurable, and they literally tell you something about cell aging. And there are now several studies that suggest that stressful life experiences, differences in income, uh, and other vectors of social difference affects the rate at which your telomeres shorten, which then affects the rate at which you age and affects the rate at which you get a variety of diseases, including cardiovascular diseases, including cancers, and also including problems and dysregulation of your immune system that make you more vulnerable to infectious disease. Outstanding. So that's very, very interesting. Now, last question, and we'll make it quick since we're running out of time. Have these studies with your team, you know, I was looking through the literature, there seems to be other studies that are pointing in the same direction. So this is not something that just your team has discovered but it's been speculated on, and I imagine it's been continued to be researched over the years. So you, is there a growing database that supports the claims that you're making? Absolutely. I and my colleagues have been studying this probably for close to 30 years, but at the beginning, I don't think we had the broad knowledge we have now of what happens at the molecular level, if we're talking about the telomeres. There was much more singular focus on on individual behavior change as the way to, or individual behaviors as the way to think about racial or ethnic or class disparities. Um, we've gotten much more kind of sophisticated in, in our understanding on the one hand of the whole physiology of body system dysregulation and cellular aging, and on the other hand about the sort of critical race theory and the ways that racism can impact health in both objective and subjective ways. And so over time, our work has provided more and more evidence in favor of this perspective in a number of different populations and different ways of measuring it and different health outcomes. And others have also studied this. And so I think it's, it or studied parts of it. For instance, the work on stress and telomeres was not initially done in the context of racial disparities, it was just done as a way to try to understand biological aging as we began to have an aging population. Mm -hmm. So there's these different strands of research that have gotten more and more sophisticated and under this umbrella of weathering our stress physiology, more and more of us have been able to bring them together and apply them to the racial health inequities. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been very, very insightful that, you know, racism and poverty, it, it literally kills. There's science behind that, not just common sense. Absolutely. And I think you've explicated that very, very well. We've had the great pleasure of visiting with Dr. Arlene Geronimus at the University of Michigan. She's a research professor, Population Studies Center. Her research can be found by Googling her name, which last name is G-E-R-O-N-I-M-U-S. If people want access to any of your research, are there any sites that uh, they should go to for that, doctor? There isn't one place that you can find it, but, it, but they're all pretty 
accessible and if, if people are looking for particular articles and hit a paywall or can't find it, they email me, I can send it to them. Very good. I'll make that email available if that's okay for you with you. That's, that's fine. All right. Well, thank you for bringing light into darkness and thank you for your research and work. We look forward to the further progress of, of your research. Keep us posted. Keep me posted, please. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so, so, so much. Welcome to all of our listeners. Today is the 5th of March, 2018, and we continue on our Black History Two Times trilogy. I don't even know what six times is, so I think it's two times of a trilogy. That's six. Anyhow, we started off with actually talking about some black history and, and the importance of the first black slave revolt in history to succeed, namely in Haiti. With the first week, we moved on to, to include in that context several shows, one about, uh, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, epic speech, Beyond Vietnam. We also moved into a couple of shows featuring Malcolm X's uh, critique of the international power structure, of course, that Haiti was victimized by and continues to be a major actor in the world environment today, but is never recognized. And then last week, we actually had a wonderful show with Shane, Shane Ford, uh, and his uh, rendition of just the history of the black experience through, um, through blues. Uh, I found that show to be fascinating and musically inclined. And, and on the subject of reparations, we will be spending some time connecting as a solution-oriented presentation to the continuing intergenerational structural type of poverties that are passed from generation to generation and are affected in our our black population more so than any other population in our country. Before we get to that, though, I do want to just highlight the Haiti experience because that was a very interesting experience in which there were reparations of sorts, but the reparations went to the colonizer, the country that actually was sucking the lifeblood out of Haiti, just like other colonizers were sucking the blood out of their colonial possessions. You know, what did it take to become the only successful slave revolt in world history? I just wanted to share that this revolt started back in the early 1790s, 1791, culminating in 1804 with independence for Haiti. But more than 100,000 Haitians were killed in the slave revolt, and some 30,000 white slave masters were also killed on sugar and coffee plantations. What was interesting, and this is where I think uh, one of Malcolm's great donations to our understanding, uh, one of the tools to understand this, this concept of international power structure, the British were also a big colonizer. And of course, we can go back before the 1790s, and uh, we're not going to go through the whole history of colonization, but really it was the Spanish and the Portuguese that began the conquest of the New World. And they eventually were supplanted by larger and more powerful colonizers, the French and the English. And then, of course, the United States joined the group there, and actually with the Monroe Doctrine in 1823, announcing that this hemisphere was ours, and now we were strong enough to make it ours, or at least we thought we could, and in fact we did. That occurred in, in 1823. But this concept of international power structure, I think, is really important to understand that these nations, these huge nations, got so much of their wealth to fuel their own industrial revolutions and own economic development off the backs of indigenous people and slaves. And the international response to Haiti's slave revolt is a powerful uh, example. So as we get to 1791 in the, in the Haitian revolt, and of course it wasn't Haiti then, it was Saint-Dominique, but the British 
came to the aid of the French because they had a desire to crush the rebellion and reinstitute slavery as well because of their own worries that uh, this bad example might spread throughout the Caribbean colonies that they possessed. And a victory would offer also for them a monopoly of sugar, indigo, cotton, and coffee to fuel industry of the you know, British Empire. So in 1796, the British Empire sent out one of its largest ever expeditionary forces, some 30,000 men on nearly 100 ships. At least 40,000 British soldiers and sailors perished in this campaign. In 1802, if you have read this history, it was Napoleon Bonaparte that he sent his huge army of some 35,000 troops, including Dutch, Swiss, German, and Polish troops, to reconquer France's former colony and restore slavery. And this, despite a campaign of terror waged against this Saint-Dominique colony, the Haitian Saint-Dominique people, Napoleon II was defeated, and only 5,000 of of that 35,000 troops returned. Washington gave some 400 to $700,000, which is a huge sum of money at that time, in military aid. And later, multiple sources seemed to put the number closer at 400,000 than the 700,000. But regardless, it's a huge number. This was in military aid and some troops at the time of the French effort. Um, On top of everything else, another big colonial power, part of this power structure, if you will. Spain made similar attempts, sending thousands of troops between 1791 and 1804. So in January 1st of 1804, after defeating three empires and their U.S. ally, Haiti proclaimed its independence, becoming the first free black republic in the world. And the Haitian Saint-Dominique economy, once the producer of three quarters of the world's sugar and half of its coffee, namely as the colony Saint-Dominique, was now ravaged. On top of everything, France demanded, after, after making their wealth, after making the, the vast majority of their wealth off this colony and devastating the indigenous pe- people and devastating the, the, the prospects for the Haitians into future generations, France demanded reparations that Haiti had to abide with in order to get access to the world market and avoid a threat of reinvasion by the French. Now, this French demand was supported by these other big powers, by these other international power structure nations, if you will. And under these coercive conditions, there was some originally some 150 million francs, which would have been more than 21 billion in U.S. current value, that was financed by a French bank. And this was later reduced to, I think it was like 90, actually 90 million in gold was, was actually handed over by the Haitians. So in an article later that Isabel MacDonald wrote back around the time of the earthquake in Haiti, that would be in August of 2010, she adds other information that's consistent with this information we just presented. But in 1825 is when the French king Charles X demanded that Haiti pay an independence debt. So this is like 20 years after the independence, and the independence debt was to compensate former colonists for the slaves who had won their freedom in the Haitian Revolution with warships stationed along the Haitian coast. Backing up the French demand, France insisted that Haiti pay its former colonizer 150 million golden francs, 10 times the fledgling black nation's total annual revenues. And so under the threat of this invasion, this re-enslavement of the population, the, the Haitian government had little choice but to agree. So the, the history is what it is. Uh, Haiti did end up, as we said, dispersing some 90 million in gold francs to France in this period. The other thing I just want to end this summary with is that 186 years later, in 1990, December of 1990, 
This is the first democratically elected president in history of Haiti would be elected. And of course, that was Aristide. And it was the U.S. that played a central role in undermining Haiti's elected government and activities to proactively address poverty, education, health issues, etc. under the Lavalis party that Aristide was a part of. Haiti's activities to proactively address poverty, education, health issues, etc. This is all measurable. This is all done in this democratic small window of time before the coups started coming one after the other and the continued manipulation of making the economy scream, so to speak, that was occurring by these Western powers led by the United States as the international power structure continued to exert its stunting of of real democracy. With all that being said, I wanted to start the show off with that because here you have the most powerful nations in the world ending up claiming and accessing and getting reparations, regardless of what is right or what is wrong. So this concept of international power structure is key to deconstructing and understanding oppression, that all of the wealth, uh, the accumulation of wealth by these advanced nations, so much of it overwhelmingly came from slave labor. And after slave labor, controlling the governments of newly independent nations. So for instance, in Haiti, they became independent in 1804, as we indicated, following the slave revolt that began in 1791. However, just because they were independent on paper, in an article written by Noam Chomsky, who's a a renowned historian, he writes that between 1849 and 1913, U.S. Navy ships entered Haitian waters 24 times to protect American lives and property. Haiti's independence was scarcely given even token recognition, according to Hans Schmidt, another outstanding historian who observed in his histories that there was little consideration for the rights of the Haitian people. They are, quote, an inferior people, end quote, unable to, quote, maintain the degree of civilization left them by the French or develop any capacity for self-government entitling them to international respect and confidence, according to Assistant Secretary of State William Phillips at the time. He wrote the recommending policy of invasion and U.S. military government that Woodrow Wilson, the president at the time, soon adopted. Never mind that the French civilized torturing and maiming of slaves and the civilized, intellectualized, racist slurring that was rampant at the time and allowed such comments to go unchallenged. So you're probably aware, and we should be aware, of the Duvalier regimes that we supported. And at the end of the day, what's important is when you look at what did the Aristide government do? Because remember, the first Democrat elected government was in 1990, 186 years after the independence. There were a couple of coups we mentioned. However, what did the Aristide government do? It, it passed legislation that created food programs for kids uh, going to school. It subsidized school books, school lunch programs, meals for kids who otherwise may not have even had access to a, even one good meal a day. And under the Lavalis Party, with regards to health care measurables, the Lavalis Party spent a larger percentage of its budget on health care than any other previous Honduran government since its 1804 independence. Also, the uh, Valles Party was formed in 1996, and Aristide was a member of it until that coup in February of 2004 just deposed him. During that time, 
the Lavalis party, led by Aristide. It raised the minimum wage, Aristide did in 1995, and then he doubled it in 2003. There was extensive land reform. Women were elected to the House of Deputies to positions of cabinet level for the first time. And a woman's multifold kind of uh, agency addressed issues of rape, victims, and improving literacy and access to education and vital health and prenatal care. Illiteracy was de- decreased in the country from 85% in 1996. to two- By 2003, it was down to 55% right before the second coup there that we were talking about. So this is why Aristide was overthrown, that anytime you have a government that comes in there and demands proper wages and demands proper types of labor codes to protect workers from death and getting maimed at work from bad equipment, those types of things, that costs money. And that money just comes out of the pockets of the profiteering that goes on. Uh, It has nothing to do with Haiti not being able to, to manage its own affairs. It did very well until, you know, these promoted coups by the West. I might add, we have done shows. Today, as you listen to this show, is one day after the uh, June 28, 2009 coup anniversary in Honduras. Under who? President Obama. Under who? Secretary Hillary Clinton. Uh, Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton. The same thing in that country. All of these things were moving in the direction of better living conditions for the majority population. Measurable, we went through those. The Center for Economic Policy Research did an extensive paper showing how the majority population benefited. The only people that didn't benefit were the ones making all the money and uh, lining their own pockets with their close affiliation with the despots of of, uh, Honduran industry and military, much of them trained in the United States. And then finally, when you look at Libya, Libya had the country that had the highest human development index in the whole continent of Africa. There was no place you could live where your children would have a better chance of success and a quality of life unmatched by any of the other 54 plus nations of Africa. Yet we overthrew that country and lied to the American public that it was because of humanitarian concerns. How could there be a humanitarian concerns that you would appropriate to one country that had the highest level of living? This is this is just a, a scam. This is a really important understanding of our foreign policy, that why are we consistently supporting the worst governments if your barometer is how the majority population's welfare exists before versus after we get involved. And consistently, from Honduras to Libya to Haiti, you know, Nicaragua, to all of these countries that have gone in a different direction, their countries actually reverse the profiteering conditions that actually improve the uh, living conditions for the majority population. And if they are able to break out of that orbit, then they are sanctioned to death by the most powerful Western nations of the world, led by the United States. For doing what? For expressing their own sovereign choice to take a different path. And then the result is all sorts of extreme measures for the majority population, but they're not caused by the governments that are being sanctioned. They're being caused by the sanctions of the United States and the West. I mean, certainly the governments make mistakes. And they can correct different policies to mitigate some of that. 
But the vast overwhelm of these terrible conditions that we hear reported all the time, whether they're in Venezuela or whether they're in Cuba or whether they're in any other country that we're sanctioning the life out of, comes from our actions as the most powerful economic entity in the history of the world. But we are so brainwashed because the information coming to us is misrepresenting these very basic measurable facts that I'm sharing with you right now and what we've shared over the years. These can all be validated, whether it was Iraq, whether it was any of these other countries that we've mentioned. The end result is we've stirred up more terrorism than there ever was in, uh, before our war on terrorism. And in fact, what we discovered in Syria is that the opposition to the Assad government was overwhelmingly, the backbone of it, was terrorists. So we are lied to, and there's no, there's no dissent. There's no fundamental dissent. MSNBC, Fox, CNN, they all just fall in line. It's all about Russia aggression uh, and, and all of these other terrible countries taking advantage of us. Russia didn't invade Iraq. They didn't invade Libya. They didn't invade and, and, and let their number one ally, Saudi Arabia, go create this humanitarian disaster that's still ongoing in Yemen. That is all Western-backed allies. And no one is held accountable until we understand these basic truths. And so the international power structure is simply that. It is the alliance of elite economic interests that each are in bed with each other transnationally and abandon the majority populations of their own government. Way before COVID-19, we had unbelievably unlivable conditions for 40% of Americans here in the United States. We have shown that in previous shows with the UN reports and other metrics that we've provided the study and back points. Anyhow, with that, we conclude the show and wish that you have any interest in, in checking these facts, you can go to pedrogatos.org. It's where these shows are being uploaded with the sourcing so you can find the sourcing for yourself and do your own research. And hopefully you'll find this resource to be worth your time to, to visit and, and revisit. You've been listening to Bringing Light Into Darkness. This is 91.7 KOOP. Hornsby, Austin, the premier radio station of the nation. And we look forward to seeing you next week. We take you out with Land of Naivety. Have a great week. Kickbacks are his cards.